Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. do you hear or see on a t-shirt that statement, love is love? Well, I had a really deep reflection on that after a conversation I had with my two-year-old daughter a few days ago that I want to share with you. But coming up later on in the show, we're going to be diving into the topic of effeminacy and its difference from emasculation and even this whole feminization of men. Why is this relevant? There's a lot going on with regard to men, whether it's media portrayal, the floundering of many men in our culture, particularly young men, but also this fact that can't go unnoticed. And there's a lot impacting it. The fact that among men aged 25 to 55, there are 7 million of them who are in prime working age who aren't working. For every one man in that age range who's working right now, there are four who are either not working at all or looking at least somewhat for a job. Why is that? Why are men choosing not to work? We're not going to get into that per se, but we will touch on it from the perspective of what is a feminacy. It's different from emasculation. And we'll also unpack what I think is really connected to this, and that, I, and that is how emasculation and effeminacy negatively impact relationships. For example, marital relationships, relationships with family, but how when men answer their call, when men fulfill their role, how it actually leads to freedom for women and how we actually get to live out our vocations as God called us to. So stay with us. We'll be unpacking that with Dr. Philip Chavez, who is incredible. He's from the Men's Academy and he specializes in having worked in his doctoral work in moral theology, specifically on character formation. So we'll unpack that as well as continuing our Theology of the Body series, unpacking how marriage is actually for the sake of the holiness of men and women. So join us today on Trending. It's great to be with you. I was having a conversation with my two and a half year old and they say so many fun things. The stories that are occurring, the conversations are great. So we're sitting there at the dinner table the other night and it's just she and I sitting there and it's nice and quiet. She looks at me and she says, I love you. I want to marry you. To which I go, what? I didn't think I heard her correctly and I didn't understand. She says, I want to marry you. And I look at my two and a half year old. I said, you want to what? She says, I love you and I want to marry you. And I look at her and I said, I love you too, baby girl. And it's in there kind of confused again. Where did she get that from? And I'm kind of wandering through thinking. And I think maybe my husband says, you know, something like, I love you. I want to marry you. You know, maybe it's one of those things that you just say to each other as spouses. And maybe it's said more often. You don't realize it. Although I don't think so. And I start to kind of write it off and just kind of think of it as those funny things that little toddlers say. 
But then the curiosity got to me and I looked at her and I said, are you saying that because daddy says it to me? And she says, the man said, I love you and I want to marry you. Then she goes on. She says, the lady said, I love you. I want to marry you. But then she started crying. And I start laughing because this suddenly goes from my daughter looking at me and saying, I love you, I want to marry you, into this story. And I'm thinking, where on earth did she get this from? It was one of those moments where you realize how impressionable your kids are. And I look at her and I say, what lady? And she said, I was with daddy. She said, on the phone. And I'm saying, what on earth? Because we really don't show her things on our phones on occasion, you know, it happens. I'm thinking, what on earth happened? And so she says, the man. And I said, what? She said, the man said, I want to marry you to the lady. And she was crying. She said, I love you. And I'm just sitting here laughing so hard because I'm realizing my daughter saw something and it ended up being later on apparently she was like watching beauty and the beast or some movie with my husband that he had put on on his phone while he was trying to work out yes i do think that he was probably watching a hallmark movie i'm totally ratting him out and uh, (laughs) i was actually thinking that because hey hallmark has clean content my husband's really growing to appreciate it as he really not just placates me watching my hallmark content Uh, but i was kind of wondering that same thing my producer just asked if my husband was watching a Hallmark movie. He maybe was. But here's the bottom line. She was watching a movie or whatever it was, and she saw a man say, I love you, I want to marry you, and the woman started crying, evoking this emotion. My daughter picked up on the crying, picked up that it was a good emotion. She said, I love you too, I want to marry you. And so here's my daughter, and this is her interpretation. My two-year-old is in the process of discovering another way in which I can say I love you. And she has, you know, seen books, you know, kids' books that show people getting married and, of course, men and women. And, you know, I'll tell her that I married daddy when we look at those books. And so she's clearly starting to understand that whatever marriage is, it has something to do with love. It's some sort of expression of love. And so she just wanted to say, I love you to me. And so she found another way to say this. She said it with a lot of love in her heart. And she, let me tell you, my two and a half year old has a lot of love in her heart. She has a seven month old sister and it takes everything in her not to squeeze her. It's actually really cute. My two and a half year old, she'll look at my seven month old and she'll squeeze her fist really tight and her whole body will get stiff and she'll start shaking. She'll go, oh, I just love you as if she just wants to explode with love for her and she's trying not to like grab her and shake her and squeeze her and kiss her too much and so she's trying to figure out as this little two and a half year old who's learning so much about the world and is a sponge learning and picking up everything how do I express that I love you in another way other than saying it now this is significant because My daughter has been saying I love you since a very young age. I actually even remember she wasn't even a year and a half yet. And she kept picking up this phrase that she would pick up. And it's so cute. She still says it to us. She says, I love you. I kiss you. I miss you. And we'll say, what? We love you. And she goes, I love you. I kiss you. I miss you. And she'll say it over and over and over again. She really endears her grandparents and my siblings, her aunts and uncles, as she says this to them. And... So she's got this understanding of love, this expression that she's trying to 
move forward and communicating to us. But what's interesting to me is that to my two-year-old, love is love. I say it and I'm learning to say it how I want to. So some of the ways she's learning to say I love you is I miss you, I kiss you, I love you. These really cute little expressions, but the new one is I want to marry you. And so my response, so she did it twice now. Yesterday, she, again, when she was talking to me, she says, I want to marry you, mama. And I said, I love you. And I was thinking about it. I thought I could address that. I could not. It's really not a big deal. But as a good little challenge to myself to work on engaging in these situations, I thought, I just looked at her. I said, I love you very much. And I said, only mommies and daddies get married. And I said, did you know that your daddy asked me to marry him? And actually, as I'm thinking about it, I show her because she loves to look at my ring. And I'll say, when your daddy asked me to marry him, he gave me this ring. That's why I can't take it off. And that's what I tell her every time she tries to yank it off my hand. She already has a keen eye for jewelry. And so I just communicated very clearly to her. I love you. Mommy and daddy are married. And daddy asked mommy to marry him. And just kept it at that. Again, I don't think it needed an explanation. But in the world we live in, it's great to start challenging ourselves to have simple, age-appropriate conversations. But here's what kind of led me to think a lot about this topic. People say love is love. And to my two-and-a-half-year-old, love is love. I'm going to tell you I miss you as an expression of love. I'm going to tell you I kiss you as an expression of love. I'm going to tell you now I want to marry you as an expression of love. But what my two-and-a-half-year-old needs to learn is the same thing that we need to learn as adults, that love has a proper order. But some people want and need other ways to express their love. And there are many ways to express love, and it's different based on relationships. The way I communicate and interact with my mom versus my husband versus one of my siblings versus a friend that I've grown to have a very deep and profound and loving relationship with, that all looks different. And there's something wrong when we say love is love without there being proper order. See, when a man wants to love another man, that's great, but there has to be order even in that relationship. So there's something wrong when I say I want to marry you if it's a man marrying a man. That's not right to say I love you and trying to express it in that way. And some people are going to say, hey, Timmy, that's a matter of opinion. No, it's not. There's a proper function to the body. There's a proper ordering to relationships. That's why I need to have a healthy and ordered relationship with a parent, a spouse versus a child or a sibling and keep them within the proper order and not overemphasize one over the other. And no, I didn't tell her all these things. These are the things I was thinking about and how, you know, the culture says love is love. So sometimes we have, we love someone. And again, these aren't things I told my daughter, but this is what it was really making me think about. Sometimes we love someone, but we have to think through how we love them. And if I really love someone, that doesn't mean that I can just punch them and use them as a punching bag. Because if we understand what love is, we understand that we're supposed to respect, honor, and give ourselves and sacrifice for the other. But we all have this tendency to hurt the people we love most because we know they'll tolerate it and love us back. But look at how disordered that is. 
all of us have a long ways in having a deeper understanding of what is love. And I think sometimes we tolerate things we shouldn't. Sometimes we do a good job of tolerating things out of love and seeing the other person has a ways to go in growing. It's part of what we do in marriage. There's a difference between tolerating unintentional safe harm versus tolerating known and dangerous harm. And that's the problem with same-sex sexualized relationships or so-called marriages. They are harmful from the get-go. And it just requires common sense for us to know this. A little bit of medical data, a little bit of statistics to dive into. Out of love, we have a responsibility to express love in a rightly ordered way. We need to seek to understand how to love someone in a healthy, safe, and generous way. This is a challenge every single human being has, and every single one of us struggles with this. And generosity is key to loving because we begin to become sacrificial gifts, as we've been talking about in our series on Theology of the Body. We have a responsibility to learn to love as God loves. That is, the love that's referred to as agape. That's the love of God, to love as God loves, loving Christ in our neighbor. But what's so challenging is that requires sacrifice of our own ideas of what love is, sacrificing our own self-seeking desires and passions. As a result of the fall, this can be a challenge for us. And yet I keep thinking about the fact that what does it mean to sin? To sin means to miss the mark. And that's what's happening with the culture surrounding love today. We're trying to figure out what it means to love. We're trying to get it right, but we're often missing the mark because we're forgetting that there's a proper order in relationships and in interactions and in dynamics. And we need to learn how to express our love in a rightly ordered way. And that requires virtue. Without God, I don't know how you do it. This is why we need the sacraments. This is why it's so fundamental that we're living in a state of grace and striving to grow in our faith so that we can engage in a rightly ordered type of love. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. My guest today is Dr. Philip Chavez. He is the founder of the Men's Academy. He has a PhD in moral theology specializing in character formation. I love talking to Dr. Chavez because we get to unpack in particular the character, not just of the human person, but in particular of how men and women in our interactions together really do impact each other. There's a challenge in the culture today surrounding effeminacy. And so today I want to unpack effeminacy and its difference from emasculation. We see this is a challenge in everything from the way media portrays male characters in movies as just the extra luggage, the extra child. We see men, especially young men today, floundering. We see a culture of jobless men, vast majority of men at age 25 to 55, just in the United States. We see 7 million of them are without work, many of whom are not working at all or just looking a little bit for jobs. Now, just to put this in perspective, for every single man, in working age years, between 25 and 55, there are four who are not working or who are maybe looking for work. So the big question here is, what's happening to men? Joining me today to discuss the difference between effeminacy and emasculation and its impact on our culture is Dr. Philip Chavez from the Men's Academy. Dr. Chavez, welcome to Trending. Thanks, Timory. It's always, always great to be with you. 
Let's unpack what's happening. Talk to me about effeminacy and emasculation and its impact on the culture. Maybe even begin by defining some of these terms. Sure. Well, emasculation, is, as far as I think about it, usually could be seen in light of it being a substantive, like a noun or a verb. So when we speak of emasculation, we speak about a defect of manly virtue, right? A defect of how a man should act. As a noun, it would be something of a defect of his manly role. So if I were to look at it and say in, in terms of um, the opposite of manliness, it would be some loss of his manliness insofar as he's maybe he goes to the extreme of being too rigid, too inflexible. Maybe he's unyielding, maybe he's overly dogmatic. You know, and then he may have tra traits where he dresses like a boy. He fails to explore. He fails to be direct. He changes his mind too frequently. But as a noun, I would say, as a substantive, in terms of his manly role, it would it would go to what he's it, one of his manly capacities. So he's if he we just say he's a leader, protector, provider, it'd be some defect of these. So a certain emasculation of a leader would be someone who's like a tyrant on a dictator on one hand, or the opposite, maybe he's uh he's somewhat of a deadbeat or a generally a weak guide. If he's a protector, if he's a genuine protector or not, rather, and he's on an extreme, he's either probably brutish or he's intimidating, or on the opposite, he's a coward or a weakling, or in the case of a military, a deserter. And we can look at man even as a provider. If he were to move into emasculation in terms of these, and to some extreme, he'd be a Scrooge or a miser, or say, on the opposite spectrum, a spendthrift or a squanderer. And so at least that, that's how I understand masculization, emasculation, excuse me, and how to, how to talk about it. I appreciate that you give kind of two opposite extremes of how we miss what is the masculine virtue versus the extreme of the tyrant to the person who is just floundering, right, and right. apathetic. And I think just kind of throwing into this conversation, Dr. Chavez, ultimately we're all seeking or should be seeking for virtue. And if you dive into philosophy and Aristotle, virtue is that median, right? That middle ground between these two extremes. And that is where masculinity right. lies. And isn't That's it right. so easy, would you argue, to fall into one versus the other? Well, I think it, you mean in terms of extremes, easy to fall into one extreme or the other? And Yes, and fall out of that middle balance of what is true, authentic masculinity as God designed it. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's very easily for, for men to do that. And what makes that the case is maybe certain things that a man has experienced in his lifetime. Say, if he never got much mentoring in his life, then he tends to overcompensate. And so he may be lacking in courage. Or he, on the other extreme, he's either too, um, too aggressive or tries to prove himself. So mm -hmm. there's other things, too. And even in soft circumstances, he can find himself um, moving into rigidity, too. If he's trying to compensate for softness, say he's trying to, uh, I don't know, um, be too brutish in the way he works out or, or whatnot, or he just disinclines from working out altogether. Mm. So talk to me about maybe what are fake masculine traits, because I think there are a lot of men who think, oh, I'm so masculine, or you have this example. I think a lot about everything surrounding Andrew Tate today, and I see the good and the bad there, and I think some people just only see bad, but I think there is really a true effort being made, but talk to me about what are fake traits of masculinity. All right, this is where, again, men believe they're, they're on the right track, but they're absolutely not. So, say, for example, a man could be, um, think he's a good father when he's maybe uh, really disciplined, 
or he may make the mistake of allowing his wife to take charge. Or what's uh, oftentimes used to happen in the past, he's too preoccupied with providing for his family or to think he's doing his, uh, his family right when he's simply providing for them. Or maybe, too, I think what, what's common today I see, too, is fathers too preoccupied with a child's school education and degrees and not really their human character formation. You mentioned something interesting I just want to touch on. Were you saying a moment ago that a false sense of masculinity is when you exclusively focus on providing for your family, but that's it? I think so. I think so. Because a man, in that case, he loses the wider spectrum of what he's called to. So, you know, in that triad, I go, you know, he's, he, I usually go with, he's a leader, protector, and provider. Sometimes men believe if they're doing one of those, they're following, um, they're, they're living in some way a balanced or just or just or upright life, right? So if he think, believes he leads well, he thinks he's covered. If he's simply a good protector, he thinks he's covered. It used to be, especially in the past, and if a man uh, excelled in providing, um, then that was sufficient for him to be called himself fully a man. And so this is oftentimes where men are deluded that if they have one virtue, they think they have all of them. Interesting. And isn't it so interesting? Because I think there's a spiritual as well as physical dimension to all of those. You say the balance is having all three, being a leader, protector, and a provider as a man. But when a man focuses in on only personifying, really living out that one to the detriment of the others, he really doesn't have what is a balanced and true, authentic sense of masculinity. That's right. And it even holds in other offices, too, for employers, even for priests and for clergy. I mean, some priests or clergy will find themselves in error when they think, well, I have the truth and I'm teaching the truth, therefore I'm a good priest, I'm a good pastor. Um, some believe that they're well-studied. Well, if I'm well-studied, I'm a good priest and I'm a good pastor because I know the faith and I'm teaching mm. the faith. So sometimes he can overcompensate or believe he's, he's a good priest simply because he has the truth and he's teaching it with clarity. But he may miss the other aspects, ministerial aspects, say, of being more dutiful in distribution distributing the sacraments, or just shepherding his flock. So it's even a priest I've seen get deluded when they think, you know, they have one area of their priesthood uh, well exercised, but they miss the others. How would you encourage a man to reflect on his masculinity and see, okay, here are my strengths, and this is an area I may focus a lot on, but here are the areas I need to work on. How can a man work on that and see through those blind spots? Well, it's exactly, that's the case. First, he has to overcome those blind spots, right? And so usually the, only, the best way he can do that is when he's either, well, uh, discussing these things with a mentor figure or his wife. And this is where sometimes he has to be subtle and prude when he asks his wife, you know, what, what she thinks he might be missing or what, what he, you know, she thinks uh, might be lacking in him. And I think there's judicious ways of going about that. But definitely a man has to be direct with his mentor. He has to talk to him about his life because, again, as you said, he could easily be ignorant or just simply miss where he's lacking. And that oftentimes, more so than not, needs to be pointed out. It's very hard for men to look into themselves and to see those issues. So it sounds like in order to make some changes and have the sense of accountability and growth in a masculine identity, men need to have those conversations if they're married with their spouses to work on this. You know, what areas humbly do I ask that I need to work on? But also you exactly. mentioned mentors. What sort of mentors do men need today to ward off this effeminate, emasculating culture to grow in their masculinity, which is what they want, what they need, what they should be living up to, and what we'll discuss in a little bit, allows women to live our vocations freely as well? Sure. In, in this case, um, 
it's, it's in my opinion, the present age, a mentor for a man nowadays has to be somewhat like a brother figure. What I mean by that is a mentor becomes somebody in his life who has been walking with him in a journey. Often as I have certain mentors, say in ministry, and I don't contact them that much, right? But there's other men I know, who are a couple of laymen especially, who I'm very close to, and they've seen me. Um, we Our discussions are much longer and they're more frequent, so they know me. So it has to be somebody who really knows you. This is where even sometimes Catholic men are deluded when they think, well, I go to my confessor and I tell him things and he gives me input and they think they're done. Well, the confessor doesn't know your journey. He doesn't know the details of your life. He doesn't hear through some of the problems and the things you struggle with or just try to simply work through. It has to usually be somebody who, who one walks with in a journey of um, re- revealing oneself, what he's up to, what he's doing, his passions, etc. I love that because I think a lot of men desire mentors, but they don't know how to find them. And you're saying it's someone who's a brother-like figure who walks alongside you, actually knows your life, can kind of speak into it, maybe even address things if he notices something's going on. For men who say, you know, I really don't have that. I don't know who that would be. What are maybe some guidelines for figuring out how to find a mentor? Because I think men, would you agree, need a mentor in all walks of life, no matter their age? They do. They they do need a mentor uh, in respect to their age. But again, it's more like a brother figure who walks with you. And men could have some hope in finding that much more so than one who will direct them, which is oftentimes hard to find. It's much easier to find somebody to walk with you as a brother figure. This is excellent. That's Dr. Philip Chavez from the Men's Academy. We're talking about overcoming effeminacy and emasculation in the culture. We're going to come back talking to Dr. Philip Chavez about how emasculation and effeminacy negatively affect relationships and what gives women the freedom to be who God called us to be as women based on how the men in our lives live. So we'll be right back with Dr. Philip Chavez. You can find him at themensacademy.org. That's themensacademy.org. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Joining me now is Dr. Philip Chavez from The Men's Academy. Find them at themensacademy.org. Dr. Chavez has a PhD in the topic of moral theology, specializing in character formation. And I love Dr. Chavez to unpack some of the key crises of our culture surrounding just day-to-day behavior, especially between men and women. I know you and I have spoken often of the crisis of emasculation and effeminacy in our culture. But my question for you is, how is this impacting when men are emasculated and living out a very effeminate form of behavior, how does that impact the relationships that they engage in day to day? I think the best way of reviewing that would be to go over generally the difference between woman and then before we see uh, how it, how that emasculation affects that. Now, a man, and John Paul II talks about this, a man sees the universal and the abstract, where a woman is more keen, has more gifting in the particular and the concrete. And there's particular reasons for this, because in the family, the man sees a certain overall governance, which is important, and the woman sees the particular needs of each of those in the family. So each of those giftings is needed for a well-ordered, well-governed family. Okay, so 
But a man has to be careful, though, when he's governing his family and, and the way he looks at this family and his level of expectation. And he must understand that his wife doesn't navigate things the way he does. So, for example, you know, there may be a law out there which he will see it as bad for the populace, but then she'll argue with him and say, well, look, honey, but this is good for Aunt Harriet, so it's a good law. Well, no, well, don't you understand that, that for the, for the, it's, it's either too costly or that it's going to uh, cause all these other host of problems? And she's going to say, well, it's, but it's good for Aunt Harriet. So she'll sometimes, that's how she'll view things and, and, and um, receive things many times. And so he's got to ex- uh, respect her ability to see the particular. Now, there's better examples than that, but oftentimes, um, you know, he'll, he'll, sometimes he'll blame his life for being clueless, and she'll blame him for maybe being insensitive about certain things. So again, once we understand that, that men have these certain giftings, again, for the universal and the abstract, the win for the particular and the concrete, then we can see how the two, uh, they have their different giftings for a well-ordered family, and they don't blame each other when they do exercise those. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, and I'm just even thinking about some of kind of the concrete examples of this, because as you mentioned, Pope St. John Paul II spoke a lot to the differences between men and women. But if you take into it some of the negative elements, how we're seeing this emasculinization and effeminacy and feminization of men today, a lot of what you hear described about men is that men are soft. Uh, they, they're not sure. as agile and nimble. They're very unexercised. They're not, one, capable at times of protecting or willing to protect, or they have this macho, I'm a man attitude, but this aggressiveness to them that is demeaning toward women, either in interpersonal communication or even sexually. And so with that, there's a lot of harm that's occurring to it. Women are confused, whether it's the softness and lack of protection or the aggression and demeaning. How do we come out of this negative impact? And where is a woman in response to that crisis of men who are living very effeminate and feminized type of lives and behavior? Okay. Yeah, that's a pretty wide question. And so maybe concretely, what happens here is that, yeah, in the age of softness, what especially what's caused by things like the cyber world, or you know, I'm a big one about the shower. You know, it's it's unfortunate that men don't experience cold and heat the way they should, and you can all adjust the shower just perfectly to get that right temperature. <laughs> in the past, that wasn't so, and so men used to toughen up because they didn't have these things which made them soft. But even the cyber world, you know, every time we check our text messages or go online, we get a certain pleasure. Now, what happens is the way that disaffects a man is when he gets habituated to experiencing these little pleasures along the way, these little excitements about receiving a text, then he learns to live on a level of sense. Then what happens is when he learns to live on a level of sense more and depend on that more and incline to that more, he'll lose a sense of the universal. So he'll lose a sense of governance. So one of the things that women see in men now is the inability to see the good, maybe for the entire family, and see the good and maybe their obligations or whatnot, and say they will come to distrust them. And I think that's pretty common. Um, You know, sometimes, too, men will get, in their ability to see the universal, they'll get a little bit too magnanimous. So, for example, you know, you may be having a, um, you may be having maybe a special gathering at your home, and you'll navigate what may needs to be done to the home. You'll both say, yeah, let's, let's, you know, prove the house a little bit. And the dad, you know, your husband might say, well, honey, let's, let's, uh, let's rehab the bathroom. And then a woman will say, well, 
you know, she'll think, well, he doesn't really have time for that. We don't have the money. She'll say, well, why don't we just paint it? Okay, and so he might get upset for her at her because she's recommending something simple when he had this kind of this more grandiose kind of vision for things. So in masculization, even though he may see a certain bigger picture, um, it may not be appropriate at certain times, and his lack of judgment will cause that. Or oftentimes she won't have that lack of judgment. Anyways, yeah. go ahead. And even just thinking of that as an example, that's something keen for me to learn of being married, that men see that bigger picture. And I'll, and sometimes I've always thought of it as my husband's a dreamer and I need to embrace the dreaming dimension of it. But I think you're bringing it to a much more practical level. And a man's seeing the bigger picture and not that he's ignoring whether or not there's a financial burden, a time burden, or whatever it might be, but that he's just seeing the bigger thing. Hey, let's make the house look nice. There's this great big gathering. Let's remodel the bathroom or let's re remodel the living room or whatever it is there's a practical side on the other where women's seeing let's just make sure it's comfortable and let's do something simple to make it happen and not That's that right. either one is wrong or that you know just the woman's right but there are different ways of looking at it and it's the coming together in the middle that helps to move the ball forward and what should or shouldn't be done Right. And this is where, too, say that we're in the period of summer, right? And we're, well, of course, kids are going back to school. But usually what happens, too, in some couples, when they plan their vacations and they have kids, what happens when the difficulties now with planning vacations is the kids have got things going, right? Uh, right. Either school or no, more so than not, they have got some kind of activities. And so, you know, your husband may say, well, let's take a vacation, you know, uh, third week of July. And you say, yeah, but Johnny, he's got, he's got basketball practice. He cannot miss out these things. And so he'll say, well, He'll think, yeah, but he's got to look at big picture. He'll maybe looking at all the obligations everybody in the family says, well, this seems to be the best time. And she might take that as a certain kind of insensitivity toward little Johnny. So this is where they got to work together to kind of understand. And a man's when he makes his decisions, he has to kind of, you know, sometimes he, he may make them too hard to determine. And, you know, he say, well, I understand it's Johnny's, you know, basketball, you know, uh, special training at that time. But look, we've got to forego that this time for the good of the whole family. Mm -hmm. And she's and got to understand, too, and be sympathetic that, he, you mm -hmm. know, it's tough to make that bigger decision. Mm -hmm. And what I'm seeing in a certain respect is that, you know, men have the strength and seeing the universal, the big picture, seeing the process, the function. And with that, there's a certain level of detachment that I see is so helpful, whether I'm having a conversation right. with my husband or making a decision. And this is why I know a lot of people get worked up, Dr. Chavez, about the authority of the husband within the home and following the husband but part of what i find so freeing about trying to live out that dynamic in such a broken culture we live in is that when i do try to lean toward the direction of that deferment even when it's not easy there's a bigger picture and often there's a sense of freedom in that detachment from the decision of all these other little things from feelings being hurt, people being included, how, you know, the timing or who might be too tired for a particular situation, that it helps to have that somewhat more detached and big picture perspective that occurs. I think you're right. I think, too, one of the things that happens, and I think you, you intimated, too, that there can sometimes be a burden with making certain decisions, right? And it's nice to know your husband carry that burden because what happens in the home, a woman has many burdens. And there's many responsibilities she has, especially numerically, right? And so she's burdened by so many things. And so she needs to be released of some of those burdens. And so when a man does decision-making, I mean, not only does he have certain uh, capacities to do that for the good of the family that God has given him, but it does take away a burden so she, she's not so weighed down 
uh, by further things that beyond what it is just to take care of a household and a family. I'm even thinking of a concrete example right now. We went to turn on our AC about a little over a month ago and long story short, the AC is not working right. And there's a lot going on and there are a lot of pieces to this working with the homeowner's warranty, waiting for the timing of that, determining whether we replace something, clean the ducts first. And it's just been one step after the other. And I've so appreciated that big picture. My husband's just said, okay, I'll work on this. And at the end of the day, there are so many different directions we could go. You know, you could get the you know, wall unit, you could get, you know, this unit. And the whole time right. you know, we're just kind of observing, you know, are we too hot? Are we able to do it? Do we just need to run to Costco and buy something to cool us off? And at the end of the day, I really appreciate it as this is kind of an overwhelming, multifaceted situation. He's just taking care of it, especially because it is costly and the different choices and options. And it's such a small, simple example. But that one thing off of my plate while I'm trying to take care of the girls and just go about keeping our lives functioning day to day is a thing off my shoulders that I don't know all the details about. And maybe I'd like to, but it's great not to and kind of leave that sense of trust in his hands in this very what might seem simple but at the same time you know important scenario in the midst of a southern california heat wave coming sure sure yeah because a woman's natural giftings are for relationships and so you consume so much time trying to well not i wouldn't say so much time so much as maybe certain energies or your capacities and trying to keep peace or just keep the family together and all the rest sometimes to switch into a more mechanical mode of doing things or consideration it's kind of hard. It's sometimes best, too, that you stay in that relational mode and keep the family together and see the individual needs and let your husband take care of those mechanical things, which would not only just take you out of their mode, but again, take you into a realm which might not be your primal competency, too, which is taking care of the family. And again, there can be, we're not talking about absolutes. And I think that's key. Sometimes there's strengths. One person has more time to work on an item. You know, these dynamics occur, but what's important is that we're working toward this healthy dynamic so that we can be more free in that vocation. Understand there's a reason why the church has appealed to the authority of the husband within the home, because I find when we operate in that mode of right order in especially marital relationships, what we see is this freeing, that, this freeing, this liberation that occurs for each of us to function according to our God-given missions, even when we need to learn about those missions and start to come into that mission. That's a part of the Christian journey, is stepping into the beautiful ideal that God gives us through, and it's only possible, through the grace of God Himself. I think you're right. And one of the things you mentioned earlier in, in this program uh, before I got on, you mentioned, you talked about love and it being the right order, but you also talked about sacrifice, how that was an important constitutive of love. Now, a woman and a man both, they could both be forgiving of the other when they know the other has a spirit of sacrifice that they put into the relationship. In fact, that's some kind of, ultimately, at the end of the day, that's somewhat of a proof of their love, right? It's not just that they do things well or they function well, but there's a spirit of sacrifice, of self-giving to the other. And so, Yes, work together, but if, if we can, yeah, just keep in growing in our ability to be able to sacrifice, which you mentioned the sacraments help us, they give us the grace to that. But the Eucharist itself, which gives us the ultimate grace, the Holy Eucharist also, you know, leads us to the sacrifice because that's one part of our element. So when we receive it, you know, we want to become that sacrificial being of Jesus himself that we always want to be to the other. Dr. Chavez, thank you for joining us, diving into character formation, 
men and women the complementary that we're trying so hard to live out in this broken culture and with the improper articulation of it in much of mainstream media and even in relationships today. You can find Dr. Philip Chavez at the Men's Academy. That's themensacademy.org. We've posted that on social media as well as in the episode notes. I'll be right back as we dive into Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body series as we discuss how marriage is for the sake of the holiness of men and women. And that's what God intended from the beginning. And that's why there's still this desire for marriage written into the human person, even the midst of our fallen human nature. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. I haven't talked a lot about it because it's just been challenging to make it through the day the last really almost month now, but I've had this awful, awful cold for almost four weeks now, and it was a cold and then a lingering cough and so many different symptoms going on. It's been a weird summer, but I'm finally starting to feel better. And we've been working through much of this Theology of the Body series. And it's been a good challenge for me because in the midst of often in our day and age when we feel awful or we just want to rest or things don't feel quite right in life, there's this tendency to want to turn in on ourselves as a means of self-protection. Whether it's because we're sick and we just want to rest and be left alone, whether maybe there are some wounds that have occurred in a relationship as a child, and it's so easy to turn in, to go concave, and even we see this in the posture of some people sometimes. I know not everyone can help some of the things going on, but this posture where you see people don't want to be seen, they don't want to be heard, they don't want to stand and be present in the room. And I think Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body in so many respects speaks into that, calling us into our roles as men and women. This week we had the wonderful opportunity of unpacking a little bit of what it means to understand ourselves in our particular vocations as a man or as a woman and how it's only so. And I love the response of Pope St. John Paul II, how he starts his Theology of the Body series, because he gave 133 catechetical talks. We're on just talk number 19 right now. And he begins by answering this question about divorce and marriage in Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10, and immediately says, well, what was it from the beginning? In the beginning, God created them male and female. And I think that's the same exact answer that Jesus Christ would have if we were to ask him, well, what do you think about transgenderism? Is it okay? You know, is love love? Can two men marry each other? Can two women marry each other? I think he would ask us that same exact question, or he would answer it in the same way. What was it from the beginning? What did God intend? And he says yet again, God created them male and female. And with that, this is the introduction to Theology of the Body that we've just been unpacking those first few chapters, really first two chapters of Genesis. And what's so key in Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body that we're going to unpack in his 19th talk was that he draws our focus to marriage. And to marriage as a path of holiness 
for both the man and the woman. He particularly focuses on Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, and that's where we read that God just created Eve, and Adam's response is this aha moment. Ah, finally, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken from men, and therefore a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And we read right there that next statement, and the man and his wife were both naked, but we're not ashamed. In this, Pope St. John Paul II continues to talk about original innocence and the spousal meaning of the body and original nakedness, all of these themes that we've been unpacking in the series that I hope you'll join us in the series, relevantradio.com forward slash trending. You can catch the podcast, catch up, read along. I let you know where we're at in the text. But what Pope St. John Paul II says is that even you and I, after the fall, after the stain of original sin, after that tendency, even after our baptismal grace wipes away original sin, we still have that tendency towards sin, which is called concupiscence. Pope St. John Paul II says that even after original sin, the spousal meaning of the body still remains as a task given to us. And I think that's pretty incredible that God has allowed and guided us even in the midst of our brokenness. He says, he talks about how this is understood even in our fallen nature through our self-discovery in the body, through the gift of self, and how we understand our potential as a sacrificial gift of self. He refers to us a gift of self over and over again. He talks about this hermeneutic of gift, which means this interpretation of our bodies and of our relationships as self-giving, self-donating, sacrificial. Pope St. John Paul II says that the primordial awareness of the body is present, he says, in the mystery of original innocence. What is he saying? That the awareness of the human body from the beginning is actually still there as a mark in that sexual complementarity is male and female. Not just a sexual complementarity on a sexual anatomical level, but on the spiritual sense that lived out that mark of the body, the complementarity, the desire for marriage, the desire for someone other than ourselves, the desire of women for a father or a father figure if you didn't have one, or for that brother type of figure. You know, so many people who don't have siblings of the opposite sex long for, women long, sisters long, women long for a brother, brothers long for a sister. Brothers long for other brothers to edify them in their masculinity, to build them up in their femininity for a woman. This is such an important dynamic. And Pope St. John Paul II is saying that the mystery of original innocence is actually written into our body by the very fact that we see that primordial awareness of the body and the complementarity. It's referred to, that is, marriage as the primordial sacrament. And Pope St. John Paul II talks about the original state of happiness prior to the fall, that pure bliss, that pure joy of right relationship with God and therefore right relationship with neighbor, in relationship with other people, in relationship with the earth. That was a lived reality in the garden as original innocence with the spousal meaning of the body, with original nakedness lived out. But even now today, Pope St. John Paul II is saying that the visible, the invisible is made visible 
through the body, through marriage, that is lived out in a holy way, that the spiritual and divine are revealed through the living out of the spousal meaning of the body in terms of how we act, how we behave in our marriages. We start to reveal the very life of God. That is total life-giving, self-giving love as Jesus Christ showed on the cross. As God created, or sorry, as God gave his son to us here on earth and how Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to live out the life he is calling us to in grace. We see through the Holy Family a model of the Trinity and we see in our human families a model of what should direct us toward the beauty of the Holy Family and ultimately direct us toward God. This is why when we unpack Genesis and we look at the significance of what God intended from the beginning for the human person, that as we read in Genesis 2, chapter, Genesis 2 verse 24, Therefore a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh. This was all in a state of pure innocence. There was no shame as we read in the next verse. There's a perfect understanding of one another and self-understanding. Pope St. John Paul II said, in marriage, holiness itself was lived out and understood and still can be in our marriages today. It puts, I think, a heavy burden on our responsibilities as people of faith, as Catholics, to live responsibly in marriage. It reminds me of the importance of having that guiding post of reading and pondering, looking to the Holy Family, looking to healthy marriages in the culture, looking to the saints, looking to what God intended from the beginning as that guide post. And boy, do we need to fight for it. I talked about this earlier in the show that to sin means to miss the mark. And so when we sin in our marriages, we're missing the mark of the holiness that God has in store for us that is revealed by the spousal meaning of the body where we're called to live as a gift of self. So my argument is, let's fight for marriage. Let's fight for our marriages. If you are married, fight for your marriage. If you're not married, ponder, dive into, dig into what marriage is. Look for those good, holy examples. Ask questions. Join the Theology of the Body series that we're unpacking here on Trending. But above all, we need the grace of God. This is why confession is so important in living out our marital roles. This is why truly praying morning, noon, and night is so important. Receiving our Lord Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist worthily. And discovering what it means to become a gift, to serve another human being, to become that sacrifice for another. It's possible. God's calling us to it. So that's the reason why this desire is written into the human body, because he wants us to live holiness itself. He wants us to model the Trinity. But we need the grace of Jesus Christ in our marriages in order to do that. <laughs>